Our scripture this morning is not what is in the bulletin. It will be from Psalm 130. We will get to that passage in John 8, uh, God willing, next Sunday. But today we're going to look at Psalm 130. Would you please stand? A song of degrees. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would come and speak to us now that we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. I want to preach to you this morning, and uh, we have completed John, but I realized that I had skipped a part in John 8 that I do believe is in the Bible. We'll talk about that on another day, uh, but... Uh, uh, I meant to come back to that, uh, but I hadn't had time to prepare a message this week, so I'm going to preach an old. I'm just going to put my cards on the table, and so I'm going to preach Psalm 130, and the title of this sermon is, There is Forgiveness. It's a song of ascent or a song of degrees, which were songs that pilgrims would sing on the way to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they're called the Psalms of Degrees for uh, geographical or topographical reasons. The mountains around Jerusalem were higher than the city, and people generally uh, had to go up to get to Jerusalem from wherever they were coming from. And Psalm 130 is another one of these Psalms of Ascents, but it is more than a geographical ascent. It is a spiritual ascent. It begins at rock bottom, but it ends with a very high and lofty word of good news, the message of the gospel. This psalm's message is at once very simple. The youngest child can understand it, and yet it is so profound that in all eternity we'll never get all the way to the bottom, or better, to the top of Psalm 130. It is a message we all need. It's a message for you and for me, and the message is there is forgiveness. Now, let's look at it. First in this passage, you see a great need. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The psalmist here, King David, feels desperate. Out of the depths is the language of being in deep water, sinking down Drowning, of course, he's not literally or physically drowning, but he is drowning in something. He acknowledges himself to be in a helpless and hopeless position. He's crying out persistently for help. What is he crying out for? You ever feel like that? Desperate. You cry out to the Lord in a desperate way. What was the need? What does a David need? Sometimes the Psalms cry out desperately for deliverance from an overwhelming force in battle or vindication from the slander of liars 
or even to be healed from a deadly illness. So here is the psalmist crying out because he's sick or has nasty things being said about him or is in the midst of a great battle or being chased by an enemy. Is he in captivity or exile or prison? No, he doesn't mention any of that. He only mentions one thing. This is his problem. Look at verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If God keeps a record, a ledger of all iniquities, of all sins, who would stand? Who could pass muster? Who could be approved if God keeps a record of everything? Now we see what his problem is, why he's down in the depths of despair. It's his sin. It doesn't say that his sin has gotten him into any particular trouble, but what he's overwhelmed with is the sense of it. He understands that if God keeps a record of his sins, he's doomed. Years ago, I I went through evangelism explosion training, and part of uh, the gospel presentation was called the uh, uh, three sins a day illustration. Suppose you only uh, sin three times a day. You would be a really good person, wouldn't you? And you know, sinning at the semi-angelic rate of only three times a day comes to 1,095 sins per year. And I believe the average male life expectancy, men sin more than women, so let's go with the male life expectancy, in the United States is about 78 years old now. Three sins a day for 78 years comes to 85,410 sins. We were told to ask, what would your auto insurance premium be if you had 85,410 tickets? If God keeps a record, who could stand? Well, he does keep a record. That's the bad news. The scripture says that all things are laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus says we'll be brought to account for every idle thought and every idle word. In other words, God is keeping a record. Not only of what we do, but of what we say and scariest of all, even what we think. You can imagine a scene on the day of judgment. When the books are open, it says the books will be open. The whole human race, resurrected and reconstituted from all history, is brought together and it's my turn, your turn, to be on the stand or in the hot seat and on the big screen. Our whole life plays out in front of everyone including those words that we whispered under our breath or shouted in an empty room when at least we thought no one else could hear. The fighting and arguing and cursing that only took place in the privacy of your own home because 
everyone else thinks we're so gracious and easygoing and have our temper under control and we're going to keep it that way. All those private, secret things played out on the big screen. And in come the thoughts. The daydreams and fantasies. Of course, there would be sexual thoughts. And then would come the angry thoughts when we imagined what we could do to that person who had made us so mad. It's all played out in living color on the screen. And then just the silly daydreams where we imagine we really were somebody, maybe not necessarily sinful, but wouldn't it be embarrassing to have all our thoughts played out on the screen? I do not speak of our felt needs this morning. I speak of our great needs. And our great need is this. There is a book in which everything is recorded. Every transgression is there. What are you going to do about it? That's a great need. Secondly, in this passage, you see a sweet truth. Look at verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There's forgiveness with the true God. Jehovah is the sinner's friend. There's good news for sinners. You can be forgiven every last one thought, word, and deed. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord promised that he would forgive his people's iniquities and remember their sin no more. There is forgiveness with thee. I think it was Corey Ten Boom who was once asked how she had been able to forgive, had she been able to forgive someone. She said, Oh, yes. I said, Well, you might be able to forget them, but you can't forget it. And Corey Ten Boom, uh, she said, uh, oh, I, I, for, I have forgotten it. I distinctly remember the day that I chose to forget what they had done to me. And that's what God does. I want us to look at how to be forgiven and then the result of it. First, how to be forgiven. You see how he approaches God. He doesn't try to impress him. He doesn't try to explain away his sin. He doesn't try to justify himself. He comes to God simply as a sinner who needs forgiveness. He's not a good man who's made a few mistakes along the way. He doesn't claim that he's done more good than bad. He's just a sinner, period, and he needs forgiveness. We don't have to impress the Lord. We can't impress the Lord we don't need to try to work up enough good to tip the scales in our favor. Your relationship and standing with God, whether you can legitimately call God your Father, your salvation and eternity does not depend on how good you are because the scripture says there is none good 
No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter. One iota how much good you do or how religious you are. You may come to church every time these doors are open. You may be a deacon, an elder, a Sunday school a teacher. You may be a model citizen of your county. But when you stand before God, only one thing will matter. Are your sins forgiven? And this is how to have your sins forgiven. Come to God. Cry out to Him with no other agenda, no rationalization, no explanation, no justification, no goodness, just a sinner drowning in sin from the depths. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. That's how to be forgiven. Now we see the result of forgiveness. He says in verse 4 that at the end that thou mayest be feared. Now, there's a lot that can be said scripturally about the fear of God. But for today, all we need to see is that forgiveness leads to fearing God. I just want to point out that forgiveness does not lead to license. Do whatever you want, you'll be forgiven. In fact, you already are. No, here he says that God forgives us in order that we would fear him. Now, we don't need to take the time to explain the logic here. Any halfway decent parent, when he or she forgives a child, you want the forgiven child to uh, begin to obey, to love, and be thankful for the forgiveness. But we also want them to be a little bit scared of what will happen if they do it again. There's no incompatibility between being forgiven and fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is the result of forgiveness. You see a great need. You see a sweet truth. Thirdly, in this passage, you see a greater need. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. What's he waiting for? The night watchman who guarded the city had to stay up all night. They were so ready for morning to come so they could go off duty and get some sleep. Thomas says he's waiting even more than that. But you see, what he's waiting for, or for whom he is waiting, is the Lord himself. 
There is one and only one thing we need even more than forgiveness. We have a greater need even than the need for forgiveness. And it is this, we need the Lord himself. The reason we need forgiveness is because our sin has separated us from the Lord. When you're a child, on Christmas morning, there may be a lot of presents under the tree, but, but there's usually one you're looking for. And the psalmist here, he wants to make it clear that the big present, the one he's waiting for, is the Lord himself. This is the defining characteristic of the forgiven sinner. He wants the Lord more than anything or anyone else. And perhaps your sin has driven a wedge between you and Him. And perhaps you've never become a true believer, or maybe you are a true believer, but you have drifted. You want to come back? Or better... Do you want him to come to you? Do you want to sense that, that he is with you again? It, it's really hard to describe it, but it's what the ironic benediction means when it, uh, it says, The Lord make his face shine upon thee, and the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee presence of God do you want that you want the sense that God the Father Almighty is smiling on you confess your sins ask forgiveness make no pretense come to God as a guilty sinner in need of mercy and wait for him he will come as surely as the sun will rise Tomorrow morning. The beauty of the illustration is that there are two sides to it. On the one hand, the night watchman can be pretty desperate waiting for the morning to come. But on the other hand, the morning is coming. And to those who really want him and are waiting for for him the Lord is coming. So you see a great need. You see a sweet truth. You see a greater need. And fourthly and finally, in this passage, you see the sweetest truth. Look at verse 7. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If it is possible for there to be a sweeter reality than that the Lord forgives, it is what is found here in verses 7 and 8. The Lord redeems. You see, there can be no forgiveness without redemption. To be redeemed 
is to be set free. The Hebrews were redeemed from bondage in Egypt. And redemption always has a price. That's the part that we didn't get to earlier. What does it cost for me to be forgiven? Who pays the price? You see, a holy God cannot just commute our sentence willy-nilly because he feels magnanimous today. No, there must be justice. It's the price of sin. And here in the end, he assures us that the Lord not only forgives us, he will pay the price himself and he will redeem us. And that's the rest of the story. God paid the price of our redemption. He sent the Redeemer. The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal Son of God, became man. And so was and continued to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, says the Shorter Catechism. And our Redeemer paid the price for our sins in His own blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Friends, there is forgiveness. There is redemption. Psalm 130 and verse 7 says there is plenteous redemption. In the blood of Jesus for all who will come empty-handed. Do you need forgiveness? Do you need redemption? You may have it today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.